It's Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Martha Rosenstein. On today's show, my guest is Christine Bile. Christine is an author with a passion for the outdoors and doing trail work. Our discussion covers everything from her most memorable first when she moved to Alaska to increasing the representation of women and girls in the outdoors. Keep listening for more on Outdoor Explorer. This is Outdoor Explorer, and I'm your host, Martha Rosenstein. Today, I'm joined by Christine Bile. Christine is the author of the book, Dirt Work and Education in the Woods. She lives in a yurt outside of Healy. She teaches craft classes, has worked as a writer in residence in rural public schools, and owns a trail contracting business called Interior Trails with her husband. Welcome to Outdoor Explorer, Christine. Thank you very much, Martha. It's great to be here. I think that we have a lot to talk about. I told Christine when we were setting this up that uh, I found myself, I, I read her book and I found myself nodding along with a lot of it and I kept having to stop. It took me a really long time to read it because I kept having to stop and write down quotes that covered topics that I just really, I really identified with. So I, I am really looking forward to this conversation. Can you first give us just a quick little overview of your history with trail work and how you came to Alaska? Yes, I, I think I can be quick. <laughs> it's kind of a, a long story, but uh, the book talks a lot about that. In some ways, my path to trail work was pretty unexpected. It was definitely a road less traveled, not a planned uh, outcome. Um, and I, I grew up in the um, urban Midwest and was pretty academic kid. I mean, outdoors oriented and, you know, active, but I as late as high school thought I was going to be, you know, maybe a NPR correspondent or a, a university professor, or that was the way I was tracking. And after I finished college with a degree in English and philosophy, I moved out West with my then boyfriend, my college sweetheart, who's now my husband of, I don't even know how long. Um, we decided to move out West and take a break. I wanted to go to graduate school, but I was overwhelmed with school. And I was like, I just need a fresh blank something. And so we ended up in Missoula, Montana, and on a bit of a, a lark, I got a job on a trail crew. A friend who worked on a crew um, told Gabe, oh yeah, this is this great job in you know, the Glacier National Park up in the northern part of Montana, and you guys would love it. At that point, you know, we were backcountry users and hikers and cross-country skiers and all the rest. And so I got hired on, really, it was a fluke. Someone quit at the last minute. I had no labor resume. There was no reason on paper that you would have hired me. But um, there was an opening and I was a last minute addition who could come. And I thought it was gonna be a, a year's break before going on to more academia. And it ended up being my career. Um, I, I never did go back to the you know comparative literature professor <laughs> mode. Although I did go back for an MFA um, Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing uh, about uh, in my early 30s. And that's what brought me to Alaska. Um, I decided I, I wanted to go. I'd always wanted, both of us had always wanted to see Alaska. And um, so that was the draw up, up to Anchorage. We moved to Anchorage um, after eight seasons of working trails in Glacier. And uh, again, one of those transitions where I thought, okay, well, now I've got this master's degree. I'll probably, you know, do these other things I had thought. And we still um, 
had a strong draw to just working outside and we both loved it. And so also one of the weird things about when you get into a path is you get specialized. And so I woke up at the age of whatever, 30, 31. And I was like, huh, like I'm really good with a chainsaw, but I have no idea how to do an Excel spreadsheet. And, you know, I can work outdoors for eight days at a time and lead a crew, but I don't, I don't know how to like, you know, do administrative or nonprofit management or any of those tasks. I felt a little bit like, okay. And for a little while it was like, did I kind of like back myself into a corner with this? And now I'm just stuck because this is what I know how to do. But um, it didn't feel that way. It just felt like there was still more to discover. And so we got back into seasonal work up here for the park service again and the forest service, different seasons. And then about 12 years ago, we started our own uh, contracting company, Interior Trails, and we've been doing that. And that was a whole new reinvention. So. Um, it's been constantly uh, interesting in a way that I never would have anticipated. Um, so yeah, that's, like I said, the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I really enjoyed about your book was reading your experiences with Alaskan things for the first time. Um, you talk about your a friend referring to her extra tufts. You thought that they were, she was making a joke about like a nickname for her boots um, and that the brown bears here make the grizzlies in Montana look like marmots. And I grew, I grew up here, so sometimes I forget that things are a little bit different. Do you have a favorite first memory or experience from when you moved here? Um, not, not exactly from when I first moved. Two things jump out to me, though. One, one is that when I moved to Anchorage and Alaska in general, I loved Western Montana. I mean, I, I lived there for almost a decade. I kind of grew up there in a way, became a, an adult person. And I love the landscape. And so in a way, I thought of Alaska, it was going to be like Montana, only a little bigger. And I would go there for my MFA hiatus, and then I would return to Montana. And I remember feeling simultaneously resistant, like I didn't want to give myself over to this Alaska thing that thought it was so much more amazing and wild and cold and everything. And I also was just entranced by the different qualities of life here that are not at all like Montana. They're, they're totally different. It's a completely different set of ecosystems and people and personalities and native history and all of it. And so my first thing with Alaska was that pull, draw, resistance, um, attraction of figuring out what is this place all about? It's not just a different version of somewhere else. And um, that was really profound and, and cool. I think it helped me access Alaska in a way that wasn't just the, you know, because Alaska has a lot of amazing qualities, but it also can get pretty stereotype flattened like everyone here is like you know a certain way and it, it glosses over all of the different nuances of types of people and not everybody is like you know backcountry skiing or wearing a beaver hat I mean there are strip malls and regular jobs and people all are carving out their own way amidst this backdrop that's pretty um that that makes things have to be unique in other ways so that more than any like particular little thing that was a big thing and then the only other one that's more like an image, when we first moved to Denali, um, I remember, you know, we'd done a fair amount of off-trail and traverses and peak, you know, ridge, um, connecting up mountain ridge, Montana, and then in the Chugach and around Alaska as well, but move, or uh, Anchorage as well, but moving to the interior. First trip I did in Denali National Park, I remember specifically, we took the bus out to Isleson, for those who know the park, get off the bus and we have all these objectives. Okay, we're gonna, we've got like seven hours. Okay, we're gonna go, you know, cross down there, down that valley, get up on that ridge line, do this, come around, come back. 
and we walked for like half the time we had and we hadn't even crossed the main river we were going for just this landscape in the interior in particular where you can see so far but you have no concept of how far it actually is was just mind-boggling to me and it really helped me dial back the sense of like all right these are my objectives and this is what I plan to do and be more receptive to okay here's my hope here's my map I'm gonna just move and see what happens and that was a pretty cool shift I actually had until this year had never been to Denali which is sort of I mean, Ooh, I've lived here my entire life. I know. I, and I have, I'm not the only one. I have a couple of friends who, who have similar experiences. We just never, that was not what we did when we were kids. We didn't go there. Right. Um, but that was one of the things that struck me the most was while we were looking, we did, we drove the road with the permit, you know, in our own car. Oh um, yeah. And while we were looking for wildlife, we were kind of, before we saw it, we were like, are we looking really for something really tiny? Are we looking for something like how big is it? What's the scale here? And it wasn't until we had seen a couple of, of um, caribou that we were like, okay, like I think I understand the depth and the scale because it is, it's just so, it's so big that you have, and there's no, there's no scale. There's nothing to lend scale to it because you have no idea how far away things are. Exactly. Totally. And I remember that actually, this is closer to a first when I moved to Alaska, just reminded me uh, we were in Cordova the first summer between graduate school, work for the Forest Service in Cordova, an amazing coastal environment that I had never seen anything like. It completely blew my mind. Um, and there was the, you drive out the road to the, um, the main glacier, the Miles Glacier, I think it is. We'll have to fact check that. <laughs> the Miles <laughs> Glacier. And uh, it's this huge tidewater glacier face. And what, what the people who live there like to do with the newbies is you bring them down to the rocky beach and you tell them, see if they can throw a rock and hit the glacier. And it, you totally look like I played baseball when I was a kid. I have a really good arm. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to huck this and I'm going to like, you know, whack it. And you throw it and it falls into the river. What looks like 10 feet away from you. And you threw as hard as you could. And then you realize, wow, that thing is like a portion of a mile high. And the river is like the widest thing you can imagine. And your rock went like barely further than you thought, you know, you could lay down and touch it. It was just the scope was mind blowing. And I still have that. I've lived here now. Oh gosh, close to 20 years. And it's still, I still have something like that every, just the other day on the backcountry skin track, I had something about, oh, it will be up to that ridgeline in this amount of time. And then like an hour later, we're still walking, <laughs> which is, it's great. I love that. I love being continually humbled and um, just put in my place in a way, not, not to feel like the outdoor endeavors are something to put on a checklist or a, I did that. It's more just the process of seeing yourself as a part of a landscape. I really, that never gets old for me. Yeah. And have you, have you found, I found for me personally, like 2020 was a year when I really, I really did that more. I went out just for the sake of being out because that was how I was socializing with people. Um, I mean, I've always been, I've always spent time in the outdoors, but it was really just a, we're going out here so that we can be together, not so that we have like, we have an objective, but if we don't meet it, it's not a big deal. We're just here for the experience. Did you find, did yeah. you find that, that 2020 lent itself to that as well? Yeah. You know, I hadn't thought about that. I haven't thought about it that way until you say that. I, I feel like, yeah, definitely. I had, we actually had a funny thing that my brother and sister-in-law live in Anchorage and um, we often do stuff with them when we cross through town or, you know, um, we make a plan and do a trip or whatever. But um, 
we uh, have been in Girdwood for a couple months, it's a little closer to them. And um, because we couldn't socialize, especially during the summer as well, we, we did started doing what we called a burger walk. And we would just like meet at a coastal trail parking lot or somewhere in the Glen Alps or whatever. We, somebody would grab a bag of to-go burgers and we would walk and eat, you know, burgers just in the hand. And it was really fun. It was like, there was no, you know, we'd see things and cover some ground, but it wasn't like the point was to do X. The point was to hang out and have dinner and be outside. And it was a different, yeah, you're right. It has a different shift to it. That is, it's interesting just to think about little ordinary pieces, slices of life that are outdoors that might not usually be, that I think is really great for culture in general. Agreed. Yeah. So I've covered the topic of being a beginner with several of my guests, um, but I, and it's a theme that shows up several times in your book. Um, You talk about being united by the fact that so many of us have recently been beginners at things. And then you speak about um, how in the labor world, women know what it's, they remember what it's like not to know, to be expected not to know, and then to be taught and then later to teach. And I know that you were specifically speaking about the, the labor world, um, but this is something that I think applies to so many areas of work and recreation where women may not be well represented. Um, it's difficult, difficult enough to be the beginner, but then add on top of that, the assumption that because you're a woman doing things that women are underrepresented at, of course you don't know. How do we navigate that and change the narrative, especially in outdoor work and recreation? Yeah, that is such a complex question. It, um, you know, I, I don't know that I have an answer for how we change it, but I know some of the ways that I think about it. Um, I think that it's, you know, of course, not every woman has the same experience that I did where I, I came into something as a total novice. You know, a lot of women have come up with a certain kind of competency in the field that they go into, even if it's you know, I think of like women who grew up on farms and ranches and, you know, learned how to back a trailer by the time they were 11. And there's certainly a lot of that. But in the labor world, and I think in the, the backcountry Alaskan endeavors world often too, it happens, you know, regularly that women come into something later that they weren't taught how to do um, younger. And so there's this, this feeling of being an adult learner. I was just talking about this the, yesterday, actually. It's funny timing because... Uh, I just took a um, telemark ski lesson with uh, Brooke Edwards. She's a local amazing athlete and skier and guide and all the rest. And I've been telemark skiing for like 20 years. I learned as an adult. I've been flailing around behind way more accomplished friends in the backcountry for years. Um, and I just took my first telemark lesson. And it was amazing. And it just, the feeling of learning. I mean, we call it guiding or getting a lesson, but really what you're doing is you're making a little space for an apprenticeship, a tiny little apprenticeship. And to me, that is the word that I use over and over again, more than a beginner. It's like, I'm apprenticing. I'm deciding I want to do something and I'm seeking out people who know something about it that I want to learn from. And it's a really obvious trajectory in like the labor world where you start in a labor union and you come up under a really set, you know, paradigm of the craftsman and the mastery and the apprenticeship and all that. 
Um, and it's less obvious, I think, in other ways, but that same um, paradigm is really useful, I think, to think instead of being like, oh, you know, I hear a lot of people who just move here are like, oh, I'm just a beginner backcountry skier. And it's like, you're not just a beginner, you're starting an apprenticeship. And I just think it's a much more, I don't know, empowering and, and more um, a way that honors that process better. Because the word beginner is we use generally as denigrating, which we don't have to. That's another reinvention we could do is just right. stop thinking that a beginner is a shameful thing. You know, like in the Zen tradition, the whole beginner's mind idea is actually something to aspire to. It's like the beginner's mind is a mind that is open to all kinds of possibilities. Even, you know, even in, when you have a lot of experience, it's good to have that beginner's mind feeling. So that, I guess those would be a couple things. Maybe just changing the words we use, trying to stop associating um, the beginning of an apprenticeship with embarrassment or shame and looking at it instead as like, hey, this is a path I really want to travel and how can I find the tools that will help me do it? I mean, after two hours with Brooke, I was like, why didn't I do this 10 years ago? This was like, you know, I just learned a couple of little tips and tricks that I'm not noticing in myself that helped me in, you know, two hours make a, a leap that would have taken me a lot longer, maybe never would have. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that's one thing I would say about it for sure. Yeah, it's the, the, sometimes I think the extra burden of onlyness adds a whole other layer of stress to it because, you know, like I felt, I was lucky in that I came up on a crew in the mid nineties that had a lot of women on it. And I learned a lot of my labor skills from another woman. And that's where that idea of learning from someone who had been taught came up in the book, which gave me a lot of room to just be myself and screw up and be vulnerable and not feel like I had this whole other gender layer that I had to mitigate. Also, lots of the men I worked with were amazing. I, I never had, I never felt, um, you know, fish out of water, shamed or whatever by the men either. But the women, the lineage of women teaching was really profound for me. I was going to say that I think, um, I think we also need to recognize people who are, who are feeling like they are beginners or, or quote unquote, just beginners need to realize that those people who are experts or more advanced than them often really want to share whatever skills they have with other people and not to be afraid to ask or to be vulnerable and say, you know, I, I don't, rather than pretending like, oh, I'm, it's fine. Like, I know how to do this. I'm just going to fake it, you know, asking for help and, and really kind of leaning into the knowledge that these other, that these other people who are, are considered more experts have. I think that's really valuable too. Totally. Absolutely. And Brooke and I actually talked about that briefly and riding up the chairlift is that um, there's such an American Western also uh, patriarchal mindset that makes us think that asking for help is somehow not cool. And so even just the little step of getting a lesson in something, especially when like a lot of us, you know, I have a lot of skills that I'm good at on my own. I taught myself and I can do this and I can do that and I'm competent. So why would I need help at anything? It's like, oh, well, maybe this one thing that you're not really that great at yet you could learn and there's a great I usually think that asking for help is actually a gift both for yourself and also like you just mentioned to the giver to say hey I see what you have and I value it and I would love to receive that and it, it's a trust relationship that I think is really really helpful and you know and also to remember that everybody is a beginner at something you know like I'm skiing with this woman who's an amazing skier and I'm almost like, oh, I'm embarrassed that I'm not going to 
be very good or whatever. And she's talking about how, oh man, I've been trying to learn how to surf for this long. And I finally got a lesson and it all opened up. And it's just like, if we could all just be open about, hey, I'm great at this. I'd love to teach you. I'm learning this. Could you teach me? It would be so much easier for men too. I mean, let's be honest. Women right. are encultured in a conversation that builds more structure around how we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be afraid or whatever. But I mean, men being a, the toxic masculinity piece, being a man and having to admit you don't know something or you're not as good at whatever, that is a brutal load to carry. And I think the more the feminist talk and the angle that we're talking about can make room for men to be freer to be that too, it'd be so much better for everybody. The onlyness part, there's a whole extra layer with women when you're the only one there's not just the ordinary, whatever your personality or your history does around, am I, do I deserve to be here? Can I do this? Am I up for the challenge? Then you're the only one in the room. You're representing not just yourself, but also all women. Should women be allowed to do trail work? Are they as good with a chainsaw? Will they be able to carry as much? And you, your little self is having to answer to that for everybody. And then another layer when you're a, um, you know, a person of color or a person of a um, cultural minority and you're in this place and you're like okay not only now am i the woman and i'm not from a labor background and i'm also alaska native or i'm also you know an immigrant from somewhere that the u.s calls other then there's all these burdens on that and so that's why i think the more we can unpack how we um the commonalities we can move away from that onlyness and think about it as like, okay, I'm just one human with these set of layers to my identity and I'm doing my best and not have it have that extra pressure of like, I'm trying to prove now that, you know, you could hire a woman again and it would go okay. <laughs> because, you know, like I always say, like all my time on cruise in the sort of male dominated sphere, there are way more variations between people in either gender than there are between them as genders. You know what I mean? I don't think yeah. I said that very well, but the, yeah, the variety of, yeah. It's not like, oh, men are like this and women are like this. It's like men are all these ways and women are all these ways and there's a ton of overlap. And yeah, I think if we could focus on that stuff, it would be a lot, a lot better. But of course, you know, it's not just what we do or say, it's this whole structure that's built up. And that's the hard part is how do you unpack that piece by piece? Agreed. And I think going back to your point about saying that you're just a beginner or you're just something, I think that's something that I, I notice in my background is like, I, I'm a runner, um, triathlete and people are like, oh, I, it's, it's okay. I just ran a, it, it was just a half marathon or it was just a 10 K. And I just think that that really undermines the accomplishment that you ran 13 miles or you ran six miles. Like that's not just because somebody else did, there will always be somebody better than you. And just because you didn't do the biggest thing, doesn't diminish your accomplishment or your skill set at all. Exactly. Exactly. And it's funny, you should mention the word just because the word just is loaded on a lot of levels in my world. Like when, when we teach uh, new crews or we train, you know, do chainsaw trainings or whatever for different groups around the state, uh, student conservation association and national park crews and stuff, we always say that a safety red flag is the word just. So if you're like, oh, I'm not going to put on my chaps because I'm just going to make this one cut. We do this in the backcountry. Like, oh, I don't need to bring my beacon. I'm just going to do that lower run in the trees. The word just 
is part of the word justify. Like it, it is making a space for you to have some sort of reasoning that is not necessarily appropriate around whatever you're trying to claim next. And in the writing world, just like cut the word just whenever you can find it. You're always kind of propping up something in a way that you're trying to justify and you don't need to do that. So I think you're the same thing when you downgrade your accomplishments by saying just, you're introducing this notion that somehow you have to make a case for what you did, that it's, you know, less or good or better or worse. And like, we shouldn't have to do that. Just, that's great that you ran whatever you ran. And when I hear triathlete, I'm like, oh my God, how do you swim when you do like all the other stuff that I like to do? And then you like jump into water and ah, can't imagine it. So <laughs> it's fun. I enjoy it. <laughs> you also talk about making that transition from being a beginner to leadership and that in, in your position on the trail crew, it sort of happened. It was a natural progression, but you also said that you, you knew that you were ready for it. How did you know that you were ready to lead others? Cause I also think that that's important to know when you have this mindset of I'm just a beginner or I am a beginner. How do I know at what point it's a, I'm ready to help other people do what I'm doing? That is a great question. I, I think that that question gets at all sorts of different stuff around, I, we've talked about it before in other circles, the imposter syndrome, the, peop, the tendency in people, um, women more pronounced, but my husband assures me, it happens with men too, that you are ready for a task and you tell yourself, I'm not sure, am I ready for this? Am I really an expert? And um, so I think that's a great question to forward, foreground like, what is it, what's that line like when you're ready to take on more? How do you know that that's coming from a feeling of empowerment and not, you know, forcing yourself or being pushed or whatever? And I can only talk about, I guess I can best talk about the, that experience as on the trail crew. One of the reasons I knew I was ready to lead was that I started having more opinions about how to do something best than I did questions. And it wasn't at all that I didn't have any more questions because I mean, I've been leading and, and building trails now for better part of two and a half decades and every project I have questions. And I, we always say to our, you know, younger apprentices or employees or whatever, a trail expert does not need to know the answer to everything. They just need to know where to go to find the answer if they don't know it. So I don't at all mean to imply that I had no more questions, but I think there is a balance in expertise where your experience and your trials and errors, your mistakes, how you corrected them, start to accrue into a feeling of competence that makes you say, hey, when I see that happen, instead of asking, how am I going to fix that? I think, here's how I'd fix that. And I think that was the tipping point for me to be ready to lead was not to know everything, not to be the boss, but to be the one who was, um, who was enabling the answers to get found or the solutions to get made instead of being the one waiting for that process to be triggered by the person who knew more. Um, I think that has something to do with it. And that requires, you know, it's different from group to group in, in a, the labor field. You know, I might be the expert one day and then the next day I'm back to the apprentice. Cause I'm working with somebody who is better at whatever we're doing than me. And in the backcountry, the same thing. It's like, I really love that feeling of like, I, I had a lot of apprenticeship and um, mentoring from, you know, amazing people in Montana and Alaska, both a little older than me, a little more experienced, you know, avalanche classes and just being out on the skin track with people who taught me 
everything I know about, you know, snow and weather and mountain travel. Um, and now I'm able to do that. You know, I'm not teaching avalanche classes by any means, but like, you know, my sister-in-law who's learning how to be out in the mountains, I can take that position of leadership in a little way um, for her. And it just, I love that, that it shifts every time. And, and um, you might be a beginner one day and then you go out with somebody the next day and you're like, hey, you know, never mind that I just learned this yesterday. I'm going to pass it on to you now. <laughs> and I think if we start thinking about it more as a circle, like a loop, an apprenticeship loop that we're always stepping in and out of, as opposed to the process that you get with like the labor union, that would be a lot more freeing, I think, for a lot of people to be, you know, it's like a, it's like an apprenticeship dance or waltz instead of like this march toward when you're the one who's never going to have another question. Cause then we just get stuck with ego and stress and sucks. <laughs> and I think, I think inviting the way that I've noticed it myself is like, I want my friends to come do these things with me, right? Like I want more people to come have these experiences with me and maybe they're not experienced. So I'm inviting them in and saying, Hey, like I did this once, but I feel like I, you know, I have enough experience that I can bring you along and we'll learn this together. Or I might have, I might be one step ahead of you, but I can share what I know and bring you along. So then we can experience this together and do things together. Absolutely. And the great thing about that is since everyone has different skills, then you, you learn something you weren't quite uh, open to in the same way. Like I think of, you know, I have some friends who are such extreme skiers and they know if they want to do 15,000 vert and cornice jumps, like they're not going with me. And I know that on my best backcountry day, um, then I'm not going to go with the person who's just learning either. But on a different day, when the extreme skier takes me and we end up talking about books, because I read like a book a day, all of a sudden they're like, that was a really fun skin track conversation. And then I go to the person that I'm, you know, my sister-in-law I'm thinking of again. She comes up because she has moved to Alaska in the last four or five years with my brother too and is kind of experiencing in a new way her power and competency outdoors. She has the eagle eye for animals. So we'll be marching around, uh, you know, some doing a tour in the Chugach or something. And I'm like checking to be sure, oh, is she feeling like we're too far ahead or whatever? And she's like, I think I see a moose, cat, you know, a moose um, bed. And like, I see the, the antlers and like, there we are looking at something that she's totally great at. And when you mix up the skills like that, you don't always end up with the same patterns. You have different conversations, different things people notice. And I love that. I think it's way more interesting than just everybody tracking together who's good at the same thing at the same level. And uh, yeah. And it's fun to help people push their comfort zone a little bit. Like I find one of the most satisfying things is to do something that I know that I can do with somebody who doesn't think they can do it. And then we okay. do it and we're like, yeah, you did that. And then it's, it's just like a really, it, it builds relationships too. I think, you know, you, you deepen your relationship with your with your friends or your, your outdoor people when you do that kind of stuff together. Yeah, totally. That makes me, it's the high five code. We talk about that on trail crews where, you know, you work all day on a hard project. It's rainy. You're, you know, somebody forgot their lunch. So you share the chainsaw breaks. You got to jerry rig something. The end of the day, like you don't even need to talk. You just do the high five all the way down the crew line. And it's like this bond of like, well, we did that, didn't we? And yeah, I love that. It's a, I think you're right. It really builds connections between people to push yourself, put yourself in a place, how it's going to turn out. And then, and then, you know, um, celebrate the successes that come out of that, even if it's not like, you know, the major objective, you know, it's not like, 
you'd have to summit every mountain you try to climb in order to have the high five culture. You know, a lot, a lot of times I've learned more from, you know, routes that didn't go where I thought or ski trips I had to turn around because something broke or, you know, a dog mushing trip where two dogs got in a fight and I learned more about how to be with dogs because something blew up in my face than I did on a, you know, miles of something much smoother. And um, yeah, so those small victories or, or um, shifts or lessons or whatever, I think often are the most connective for sure. Well, and knowing, knowing when to quit is also an important skill that I think is also, it's, it's under, underappreciated. Like it's much harder to, to call it when you're thinking that you have this objective. It's so much harder to call it because something's not going right or you don't feel comfortable or you don't feel well than it is to just muscle through and push through and like, we're going to do this no matter what. It's much harder. It's much harder to call it quits and, and get back safely in a lot of, in a lot of cases. Yes, you're totally right. And, and I think the ability to do that is really what marks the expert. People who get in trouble, and I know this for myself, when I've been in a position where I feel like I have something to prove or, man, I put all this into this and I might not have another chance or whatever, is when that you activate that sense of like, it's, it's all or nothing. Whereas people with diverse or long-term experience, they know that any, any expertise has ebbs and flows of success and putting something aside until next time. And I really value that in backcountry partners um, to be out with people who are like, yeah, you know, we thought we were, I mean, and obviously for safety reasons, you know, in avalanche terrain, every single day is you're always getting new feedback and deciding from hour to hour what changes, but just people who are, are able to be like, okay, I want to set my sights on this because objectives are great. I think, it, you know, having, having um, challenges and things we want to try and do is really motivating, but also people who don't get the, the so focused on the quote the prize that they either put themselves or others in danger or it's just not fun it just turns into a i don't know like something to prove instead of something to do and be and a way to experience the world so it's a delicate balance though it does take a lot of um like anything like i keep saying trial and error and run away from the stuff that doesn't go right than anything else you're listening to outdoor explorer on alaska public media Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Martha Rosenstein. On today's show, my guest is Christine Bile. We kind of touched on this already, um, but kind of going back to the diversity um, and representation piece of things, I've certainly noticed um, a greater diversity of people enjoying the outdoors over the past year, um, kind of circumstances, you know, COVID has made, made it more, uh, more people are trying to get outside because that's a safer way to socialize. Um, I've seen a better variety of body shapes, sizes, colors, um, you know, more, more women, more kids. Um, but how do we get women and girls specifically to be better represented and more visible in outdoor spaces? 
That is such a good question that I, I, I struggle with the, the big picture, little picture on that, like a lot of things, you know, what are the small things that I can do, the ways that I can push against stereotypes? And what are the big ways, the things we have to, the mechanisms of power or access that we have to tweak in order to get things to be accessible? Because, you know, in the small ways, it's really important to me to, um, you know, whenever I encounter girls in the world, like sometimes even total strangers, which their parents are probably like, what's wrong with this person? But like, you know, I'll run into a, a girl on a trail or a girl at Value Village or whatever, and I'll be like, um, how'd you get all that dirt on your boots? Have you been somewhere cool? Or like, um, you know, a little kid who's skiing along and you're like, look at you you're looking strong or like, go get it. You got it. Like a conversation around, not like, Oh, what a cute dress, but like, Hey, how'd you get your boots so dirty? Or like, Oh, doesn't, you know, her curls are so awesome, which is lots true. There's cool kids clothes. There's awesome hair. I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying I try to shift what I notice and value about little girls. That's my little tiny piece. You know, I also try when I speak and teach to use women as examples in ways in literature and in life where they wouldn't necessarily have turned up, you know, find the pioneer woman or the, you know, um, the, uh, the scout who helped the, you know, the ex real explorers find where they were going. And it's like if sexism or racism only required that we not personally be sexist or racist, it would be a lot better by now, but people can be good people and still participate in structures that are inherently keeping large pieces of us down. Something that I deal with, like per being personally not awful or even personally really, um, really uh, valuable or, um, you know, pushing back in important ways doesn't mean we can't not look at, doesn't mean we have to stop looking at how the big picture ways are to push back. And those are harder and they're more individual. I mean. I think a lot of it is in education. I think people, people going out of their way to, to get educated about um, the different histories of lands. I think that's one thing that's happening lately that's really cool. Not just saying like, oh, I live on you know, Dene lands, but learning what does that mean? Who were these different people, all different kinds of them that were you know, in the region where I live? There's like the Lower Tanana and the, the Atna and the, um, all different groups that aren't just one. So that's one. And with the gender piece too, I think, you know, all women aren't described by the same things either. There are women who are this way and women who are that way. And yeah, I don't know. I got a little off track there. But. <laughs> that's okay. I think it's, I think it's an important conversation to have and something that, yeah. something that is hard to talk about. Um, it, it's hard to talk about in a way that especially with strangers, you know, or, or, or to know how you contribute to the improvement of these situations. So things like acknowledging land or, you know, you know, like you said, just encouraging, encouraging kids out there who you see doing things that are awesome. Um, yeah. Those are, those are definitely, I think the little things are probably, I mean, the big picture is important, but I think those little things are, are important because they're something that we can tangibly do. Right. Yep. And I think not being afraid of, um, implicating ourselves when we 
are propping up the structures that disempower, you know, it's like, I just had a conversation the other day with somebody where I was like, you know, trying to push back on what I saw as a pretty sexist way of putting something. And I was like, the reason I can recognize you're doing this is because I do it. I, I catch myself being like, oh man, why did I just totally assume that like the, you know, the girl was the one in, I don't know, with the pink umbrella, like that might've been her brother's umbrella. And then I just like shamed the brother and, <laughs> you know, whatever, all at the same time. And like, right. So it's like, I don't know. I, I think it's that we recognize like, okay, I, I'm not, I to dismantle sexism. There's lots of places where I have blind spots and I need to improve and having the conversation, not just the personal little choices about what we do better, but then the conversation about when we didn't quite nail it. I think that is gets closer to unpacking the structure because the structure is all of us and how we interlock, who we choose to recognize, who gets the power, who gets the last word, all that stuff. And so the more it can be a conversation about where we succeeded and where we dropped the ball with the pushing back against the assumptions, I think that moves the personal closer to the, the big picture um, shifts that we're talking about. Agreed. Um, one of the things that, that right off the bat in your book that you talk about that really grabbed me and I thought, man, I'm really going to, I'm going to love this book. And I'm this, this person and I really are, we have a lot to talk about. Um, you talk about how we are a culture that's obsessed with all things natural, but we're so extremely disconnected from the natural world. And I'm, my background is in healthcare and that is absolutely true there. Um, I'd like to think that maybe again, 2020 got people a little bit more connected with nature um, or at least being outside kind of depending on where they are. And I find myself, like I find the idea of having to intentionally connect with nature kind of difficult to discuss because I think it's something that was just a part of my upbringing. I spent a lot of time outside as a kid and nature is outside of our door here in Alaska. So that it feels easy to me. But what are your thoughts about how people can get more connected with nature in their daily lives, especially since I don't think most people are ready to move off the grid and live in a yurt? <laughs> well, it's funny that that often is this kind of stopper, you know, you're talking about the just comparative thing. And people right. look at the, you know, the trappings of life in the interior off the grid. And they're like, Oh, I'm, I'm not I'm not as, you know, whatever, connected to nature or whatever as you are, because, and I mean, in a way there is a connection that you, like you said, you can't help when you have to get your own firewood and you got to scrape off the solar panels because the snow is covering them. So your computer won't run. Like there is, I won't say it's all the same because there is a degree that of that kind of connectedness that is very different than, you know, other places I've lived. That said, I think we do way too much, um, of a strong demarcation between what's nature and what's culture. And that's like, if I have like a life's question or thing to push against, it's that it's like, okay, well, I mean, when we start talking about like, oh yeah, well, I don't like nature or I'm not comfortable in nature. I'm like, um, do you eat? Do you have, you know, like physical intimacy with people? Like the way we touch our hair, our skin, our smells when you're thirsty, um, when you get like a panicked feeling, if you're late for something like that is all nature. <laughs> it, like nature isn't just like being in a little cabin with a water in a bucket and, you know, watching the birds. And so I think that if we hold a little more um, kind of overlap in front of us that, you know, we are animals, humans are animals, like all of the biologists who are thinking about 
evolutionary process and everything else say that humans are a kind of animal. The way we behave is a variety of the way a lot of animals behave. It's not some totally unrecognizable thing where we're so special. It is in, on a continuum. And I, so I think that just, you know, the more we can, we can discuss and acknowledge and, and um, enjoy the parts of just our human bodies and our relationships that are totally nature <laughs> goes a long way to having it be like people don't think like it's only nature if you're going on vacation it's like well no i mean there are public parks all over this country you know in anchorage there are some absolutely amazing ones that would <clears throat> be national parks anywhere else but even in a you know in an urban environment like i grew up in the middle of the city i wasn't you know my parents <clears throat> We're both from towns on Lake Michigan, so I had access to family and experiences on the big lakes, which are very wild in their way. But I mean, my major formative experiences were collecting bugs in the backyard, making leaf projects with art, riding my bike a little bit further than I was allowed to go play in the culvert that was like this spooky cave where you could catch weird, you know, half wet, half dry worms and bugs. And that was all totally informative. For, of nature for me, even though like, you know, you, you grew up here where your nature was way more in your face, but the way the bugs work and the birds that eat them and the way the birds interact with the chlorophyll and the seasons, it's all the same, you know? So I think that's a huge part of it is, is not being so rigid in where we call the boundaries between nature and culture and, and seeing them as overlapping and as sustaining each other. Um, that's interesting to me. Agreed. Shifting gears a little bit, um, can you talk a little bit about your uh, company, Interior Trails? <laughs> um, sure. I, um, we started our business about 12 years ago. We were working for the Park Service in Denali, and it was that feeling we were talking about earlier with the expertise. When do you know you're ready to blank? It started to feel like I was a crew leader, and I really would rather have been the project manager. I wanted to pick which things do we do, and how do we do them, and who do we put on what crew, and how do you know what do I order to make sure this happens, and am I on top of the? I don't know, not so much logistics, but just like taking ownership of the project, not just receiving the marching orders, and seeing projects all over the state that needed private sector assistance. That really wasn't um, back when we started. There was, I think, really only one other. Um, trail contractor John Underwood out of Fairbanks, who's a close colleague and um, friend of ours. We all, the great thing about the trails community in Alaska is it's really tight knit. There are three or four um, private contractors who, you know, we meet together once a season. We are constantly talking about, oh, you know, what are you guys anticipating for this, their supply chain? Or if you have somebody who applies for something and you don't need them, pass on their names or how'd that project go? We sub to each other, all kinds of things. Um, so anyway, just seeing that niche that needed filling and knowing we had some expertise and some just readiness for a new challenge was the impetus and um it's been great i i have really loved 
um, the variety of projects and the way we can bring <clears throat> technical assistance to places that don't have the, you know, the overarching um, support of a, a park service trail crews budget, um, but they want to get stuff done. And, um, you know, from, from the um, great private public partnerships, like um, with nonprofits and trail, um, trail companies like, you know, STA building a lot of the um, technical mountain biking trails and Anchorage in partnership with some federal money and a private sector, um, you know, business and then volunteer hours. It's an amazing model. And actually one of the projects I'm most excited about we have coming up this summer is similar where we're working with um, public funding through uh, nonprofit management with the Matsu Trails and Parks Foundation to build the um, Curry to Kasubi uh, Ridge Trail Connector. It's gonna be like a 15 or so mile Alpine route that will connect to um, sort of dead end pieces of the trail system. And that's been an amazing partnership between Alaska State Parks and their crews and their um, uh, supervisory folks who were really key in getting the mechanisms to work and some federal funding and nonprofit to manage it and a contractor to build it. And it's a, it's a very um, fruitful and exciting um, partnership industry to be a part of. And it's, it's been, it makes it, it adds a whole other dimension to the, the ordinary challenges of like, Oh, you know, did, is the excavator, um, stuck or is the chainsaw running or are there enough people to help carry these boards to where they have to be or you know whatever your technical challenges are then there's this whole other apparatus of like who are the partners who's invested in this who are we doing this on behalf of what's the benefit for the larger community and that it adds a whole other level of complexity that's really rewarding why are trails important i know i think i know the answer to this but i i'm curious about the take your take since you built them so many reasons, so many reasons, Martha. <laughs> um, one reason is, is they are an avenue for that exact conversation I was just talking about, blurring the line between culture and nature being so strict. I mean, trails are infrastructure, right? They are, like I often say, like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in conservation work, but I'm also in infrastructure development. Like I get money and I build things. And so um, that's very culture related, but the access to the places and the ways we build to make the natural features come alive and people have access to them and notice them is, is all nature. And so then the overlap in there is that constant interweaving that I was talking about, both in the building of it and then later in the using of them, people go out in groups and they can be in a, a class or they can be on their own or they can be with a family or they can be training for their military um you know pt or whatever they're and they're having these social functions and these human culture pieces that are happening in a natural space and it just all gets entangled and tumbled up that way that i think is really important and trails are also about access you know a lot of sometimes purists wilderness people are like well no we shouldn't even be out there and I mean, I get, I've been in places that are really pristine and have a, a vibe about them that's very different than a, a park with infrastructure development. But I do feel like increasingly, the longer I work to the, um, there's a, a part of public access and fairness that trails participate in that they make places accessible to people who don't have 
the means to be out for three days with really expensive tent that's light enough to carry. Um, or, you know, they may not have the confidence that comes from having been taught to do something and they're just making forays for the first time. Trails help all, of, all kinds of people become intimate with places and spaces that they absolutely have a right to. And so I feel like I'm more and more, I'm starting to see it as that there's a piece of it that's like trail building can be justice oriented as well. And um, that I think I really see that in Anchorage. I get, you know, I actually, I get mad sometimes when people dis Anchorage and the whole, you know, oh, Anchorage, it's 20 minutes from Alaska. And it's like, you know, obviously I live up in the interior. And so there are lots of things about Anchorage that are frustrating traffic and strip malls and people breaking into your car in airport heights or whatever that I don't have to deal with. And I don't mean to gloss over that, but I think Anchorage is pretty beautiful experiment in lots of types of people and cultures all sharing this wild space. And when I get, like, I can almost get choked up when I think about days that I've had in Anchorage parks or, um, you know, on a trail like Mount Baldy or flat top or something where I don't get very often. And when I go there, you know, the whole thing about Anchorage public schools have a hundred. Um, see that on a trail in a city, and I'm seeing that more with the pandemic now. People of all types and kinds and shapes and colors and sizes in all different groups, you know, um, hanging out together, moving through the world. It is really cool. And that is something you don't see when you live off the grid in a tiny town. You don't see the diversity of the human experiment happening outdoors. And so I think Anchorage is pretty amazing for that. And I want to participate in being able to make that access as um, egalitarian and um, just, yeah, easy and welcoming as possible for as many kinds of people as possible. Christine, this has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. You're welcome. You have great questions. You're oh, really you. good interviewer. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, I, have I will more I would have asked you, but then I keep getting in this like, well, I don't want to get her off track or whatever, but yeah. Oh, it's, it's okay. Um, I'll share the links to your website on the, um, or the link to your website on the Outdoor Explorer page at alaskapublic.org. And for anybody that has a link to um, where people can get your book, um, I got it as a Kindle version from the library here in Anchorage. So it's available that way too. Um, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I really enjoyed it. And thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Thanks, Martha, for having me. It was a real pleasure. That's it for today's show. Thank you to my guest, Christine Vile. You can find a link to Christine's website where you can get more information about her book on the Outdoor Explorer page at alaskapublic.org. Thank you to our producer, Eric Bork, and from all the hosts here at Outdoor Explorer, thank you for listening, and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, The Man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. 
You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.